Hello, and welcome to the Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Biodefense. My name is Max Brooks. With me is Senator Joe Lieberman, who chaired the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee. Mr. Ken Weinstein, who was the last Homeland Security Advisor to George W. Bush and the first Assistant Attorney General for National Security. We also have Representative Jim Greenwood, who chaired the Oversight and Investigations Subcommittee of the House Energy and Commerce Committee from 2001 to 2004. Secretary Shalala, Donna Shalala, who was the longest running secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, not too shabby. We also have Senator Tom Daschle, who was Senate Majority Leader from 2001 to 2003 and has the dubious honor of being one of the recipients of the anthrax envelopes that were mailed out right after 9-11. Good times. Last but not least, Governor Tom Ridge, who was America's first Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. Governor Ridge, for those of us who don't know anything about biodefense, who've never even heard the term, just briefly, what are we talking about? Well, I think uh, in order to explain biodefense, it's uh, probably best if we think in terms of traditional defense uh, terms, because um, people pay attention to defense. They worry about who's the enemy, what's the nature of the threat, what harm can it cause, and how hopefully can we prevent it? But if something happens, are we able to respond and recover? Well, when we talk about biodefense, we're not talking about munitions, we're not talking about soldiers, we're not talking about guns and bombs, we're talking about germs. And so the whole notion of biodefense is, is how does this country, as it looks at biodefense, let's look at it the same way you look at national defense. What's the threat? Germs. It's a global threat. Zika, Ebola reminds us of that. Is there a way we can detect them, just like we'd like to detect the offensive capability of nation states, as we think in terms of traditional national defense? Uh, what are our measures to uh, counter those threats? Well, do we have medical countermeasures to respond to those germs, uh, uh, to the potential pandemic that may come to us from a nation state, may come to us from a terrorist, mm. maybe an accidental discharge from a laboratory, and worst mm. of all, maybe Mother Nature's gonna throw it at us. And then if we are able to detect it, uh, but all of a sudden it hits us, how do we respond and recover it? So when I think in terms of biodefense, I go all the way from detection and trying to prevent it from happening to providing those countermeasures to deal with it, to responding and recovery. It's like anything else. It is a real risk. It's a global risk. But it's a risk, I think, that Americans need to, one, accept as a reality. It is a permanent reality, but it's a risk that mm -hmm. with the right kind of biodefense strategy, prioritizing resources, we can manage that risk. So that's my view of what, what biodefense is all about. Okay, so breaking down that risk, right. Senator Lieberman, right. uh, taking a step back from the military defense angle of this, what about just viruses in nature? Uh, how easily can one of them accidentally find their way into the United States? Yeah, all, all too easily. Uh, we've worked together on this bipartisan uh, panel to try to raise awareness of the bio threat uh, both infectious disease and from terrorists, and uh, I, I come to the conclusion that the threat is greater than it's ever been, and our ability to deal with it is not what it should be, though we have the ability to make it better, and hopefully we will. But one of, one of the challenges here is that this is pretty hard to stop. I mean, the Department of Homeland Security uh, put out um, what they call material threat determinations for, uh, for uh, infectious disease outbreaks. 
what's most likely to occur. And every one of them, except one, smallpox, is uh, caused by animals. Let's take Zika, uh, which alarmed uh, so many people so, so recently and still does. It's still here, and the odds are it's going to spread more. You can't, um, you can't put up a wall high enough or, uh, to stop the mosquitoes from coming in that brought Zika, or you can't stop people from coming in on planes from a certain place because the mo mosquitoes will still come in. The, the great carriers of infectious disease are uh, birds. And um, uh, that's really uh, also obviously you can put up a high wall, but the birds can fly over it. So, so the probabilities are great that we're going to have an infectious disease epidemic or a pandemic, which is a very big epidemic. Now, just let me let me go back to history to sh show that this is more than us being alarmists or science fiction or whatever. Almost a hundred years ago. In 1918, there was an outbreak of flu, Spanish influenza, that killed at least 50 million people in one year. Some people say it killed as many as 100 million, but they don't have the, the, the numbers. And um, right now, for instance, in a part of China, there's a flu epidemic a caused, we can see, by people who had direct contract with poultry and poultry markets. It hasn't affected that many people yet, but 40% of the people affected are dying. Let me, let me make it personal for a, mi a minute, Max. My uh, father's mother was killed in the flu, died as a result mm. of the flu epidemic of 1918. He was two and a half. He never really knew her. Uh, his father felt he couldn't take care of him, put him in an orphanage until he was 10 when my mm. grandfather remarried and he, and he brought him out. Uh, it, it had a, that had a tremendous effect on my dad's life and on all of, all of us as children. And, it, and yet, it, I, I think about it sometimes, it's, it's, it was relatively manageable for him, except of course he lost his mother. Uh, but the, the way in which the flu epidemic dislocated millions of people around the world, uh, it, it could happen again. We're traveling much more than people did in 1918, but we also have the capacity to develop countermeasures much better than they did at that time, and shame on us if we don't. And this is just, this is nature. This has nothing to do with governments, terrorists. This is literally just what comes out of a, a poultry farm or a jungle. Exactly, or a bird flying, uh, or a mosquito uh, 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 biting somebody. Right. I, think, I think it's important that we don't even try to discriminate whether it's a terrorist instigated mm -hmm. event or it's naturally occurring, or God forbid, there are some countries that have signed up to an international protocol, the bio Biological Weapons Convention, and we don't have enough intelligence to suggest that everybody's abiding by it. Mm. It's immaterial. A germ's a germ, regardless of uh, the source, and uh, all of us have spent the past two years trying to elevate uh, awareness around the notion that the threat's real. We could do so much more with better target, a few more better targeted resources. Uh, but it's almost, it's, it, it's not helpful, I think, and we've decided as a panel, it's not helpful to say, well, it might be accidentally discharged from a lab or the terrorist threw it at you or Mother Nature threw it at you. Germ's a germ, doesn't know anything about politics, doesn't know anything about geography, you get infected. Uh, it's and, something the country's got to worry about. And it's all a national security risk. Exactly. Okay. Whether it's caused by another country, a terrorist, or a terrorist group, it still threatens our national security. It, it, it makes a nation uh, not very stable 
when they have this kind of an outbreak because of the resources they have to devote and because of the fear mm. uh, that this kind of an epidemic uh, uh, will foster. Now, now the, you bring up a good point about that it, germs as much as bombs are a threat to national security. So naturally, uh, people out there who want to threaten the United States will want to use them. Representative Greenwood, if someone <clears throat> were to use a germ instead of a bullet or a bomb, uh, how would they go about doing it today as opposed to back in the Middle Ages where they used to catapult plague-infected bodies over the walls of castles, right. or back in our own country's history when uh, smallpox-infested blankets were given to Native Americans. What would uh, the modern bioterrorist mm -hmm. have at his disposal? So if we're talking high-tech weaponizing of a virus or a bacterium, it's pretty hard because you have to change the genetics. Mm -hmm. And for that, you need someone who is a PhD in microbiology, has enough information to figure out how to do that to make a virus or a bacterium, say, more infectious mm -hmm. or, be, or more lethal or maybe able to survive outside of a body and be contagious. So that's pretty tough, but it's, the problem is it's getting easier mm. because the equipment to do that, you can buy basically on eBay now, uh, and the, the internet is so full of information, a lot of it put there by some very bad people about how to do this kinds of thing, that it's getting easier. We have a field called synthetic biology now, where you can basically make up your own species practically. I mean, you just take the genes and you combine them in, in new and different ways uh, and that can be particularly threatening. Now there's also low-tech weaponizing of these uh, bacterium and viruses. And the way you do that is not much, much different than what you just described, but you can take a martyr, someone who wants, who's willing mm. to give up their life, and there are no shortage of them unfortunately, get them sick with smallpox or SARS or some other highly infectious disease, put a bunch of them on airplanes and have them fly to our country, get out of the airports, touch things, railings, take another flight, and that would be, it wouldn't kill necessarily millions of people, but it would be real terror because it would be popping up here and popping up there and people would not know they had these diseases immediately and then they would start falling and that would be, that would be horrifying. So you bring up an important point about uh, the distinction between a bioattack and a nuclear attack. Because a nuclear attack requires fissile material, uranium, which is very hard to find, very hard to manufacture. You still need a nation state right. to turn uranium into weapons-grade plutonium. But what you're saying is eBay with a, with a germ attack, it, you can actually order a bio kit on eBay now, and the information you would need is literally on the internet. I remember when I was a kid, we had the anarchist cookbook, which taught you how to make a bomb, and it was very scary. Mm -hmm. But that's baby food compared to what is available now. Right. And, 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 getting and because it is increasingly possible to do this, and although you need sophisticated scientists, unfortunately, they can be recruited by the bad guys too. So because it is getting easier and easier, we have to get ahead of the game and be more prepared than we ever have before. And the, promise, the problem with that is what you call recency bias. We just learned that term today from a witness. And that is, if something hasn't happened recently, we kind of forget about it and put it in the past, even though the threat is persistent. Right, which, which harkens back to, in World War II, uh, the British used an aircraft carrier for the first time to sink battleships in a harbor at Taranto and nobody paid attention to it except the Japanese a year later at Pearl Harbor. 
So people don't really understand that something can happen until it already has. Right. And then we, we're in the locking the barn after the horses are gone syndrome, and we just can't afford to do right. that. Now, getting back to, to uh, germs versus nukes, uh, Senator Daschle, we have spent, certainly since 9-11, a tremendous amount of time, energy, resources, money, and American blood to ensure that a terrorist does not sneak a nuclear weapon into the United States. That's been the doomsday scenario since 9-11. And yet, from everything that we're talking about, it sounds like uh, a bioattack could potentially be more dangerous than a nuclear attack. Is, is that hyperbole or is that truth? That's not hyperbole at all. In fact, uh, Congressman Greenwood's uh, recency experience is, is one I can relate to. I, my office was the target of an anthrax attack a month after 9-11. And uh, it was an aerosolable uh, uh, anthrax compound in an envelope. Uh, a, a member of my staff opened it up and 28 people were exposed. Six people had died in previous experiences in the last month prior to that moment. But it doesn't take much imagination to think about that aerosolable quality mm -hmm. in a sports complex, a metro system, uh, anything that has an enclosure where aerosolability becomes uh, uh, just an enormous capacity for spreading uh, this threat through, uh, uh, through miles, perhaps, of tunneling, or over, uh, over 70, 80,000 people in a sports complex. So the threat is real, the technology is there, the capacity is inevitable, and I don't think there's any question that at some point we're going to be facing circumstances like that, making the anthrax attack in my office affecting only 28 people mm. look like a picnic. I mean, it, it is, the, the consequences of, of biodefense are every bit as serious, every bit as consequential. Uh, as any uh, nuclear scenario I can think of. I think you bring up two very important points. I think, <clears throat> number one, a nuclear bomb only goes off once, whereas a biological weapon can spread potentially throughout the entire country. And I, I think you brought up the second point is that when a nuclear bomb goes off, you know it's gone off, as opposed to uh, infecting people who may not know they have been infected until 24 to 48 hours later. I remember with anthrax, I believe the first person who died didn't know they were infected. And if they're allowed to get out and spread, then within a few weeks, the entire country could have something roaming around and not realize it until the symptoms show up. Exactly. And more often than not, we have to treat them within two days. Mm. And if the symptoms take some time, uh, it's almost impossible uh, to save lives. So I'd say if, if one of these infectious diseases, let's say starts in an animal or a bird, goes to people, and then it, it starts to spread among people, uh, not, you know, we're accustomed to saying, oh, something can only be transmitted by exchange of bodily fluids. We're talking about airborne pathogens here. Mm -hmm. And that's why it could spread so quickly. That's why the uh, flu uh, epidemic of 1918 killed at least uh, 50 million people. So one of the things we found is that the uh, detection system that, that was set up after 9-11, after the anthrax attacks on Senator Daschle's office, um, is not really functioning. It's not, it's not up to the technology today. And um, our government really ought to invest in that because the, the other um, uh, early warning, if you will, is to improve the uh, collection of information in real time from hospitals around America. That if people start to show up with similar 
symptoms, bells have got to go, information has got to be transmitted to Washington and bells have got to go off that something is going on out there that we have to begin uh, to fight against. If, if I may, because I know you're a historian, I just want to make this general point. Um, what we're dealing with here in, bio in the threat of biological warfare and biological disease, but particularly biological warfare, is unfortunately as old as uh, human history which is that it, it, just about every great development advances civilization, going back to fire, but then is used for violent, hostile, aggressive purposes. So, you know, somebody else said uh, this, uh, the 21st century will, will be the century of biology, meaning that in very positive ways, which uh, advances in biology will improve all our lives and extend all our lives. At the same time, if you've got a terrorist and they're out there and they're smart enough, they want to use advances in biology, they can create havoc. You know, Max, one of the things that uh, you said, uh, the analogy between maybe a nuclear device and a, a pandemic, um, we don't think it's necessary hyperbole. We are not breathless about this threat, uh, but I think the analogy isn't too far from being abs potentially sadly, tragically correct. A pandemic potentially is a weapon of mass destruction. Hmm. And uh, you mentioned and a device goes off once, whether it's a bomb or missile, whatever, this could perpetuate itself for quite some time. So I think what this panel is trying to do, and we appreciate having this conversation, is elevate the reality that this is enormous potential to affect not only our national security, our economy, our way of life. And so let's accept that reality, mm -hmm. understand. I personally am more concerned about Mother Nature uh, throwing a hybrid at us uh, mm -hmm. uh, and the globalization of disease uh, in the 21st century, as uh, my friend Lieberman mentioned, the microbes. This is, a, this is a century of microbes, and there's so much potential good associated with it, but the misuse, the abuse, or the mutation by Mother Nature creates a problem for us. But we're not breathless about it. We just think there's far too little attention paid to that biodefense protocol from A to Z, mm -hmm. far too resources directed, far too priorities set. There are multiple organizations in the executive branch that are looking at it. There are literally dozens and dozens of committees and subcommittees, but we don't have that focus. We don't have that defense focus on bio weapons and biodefense as we do to the broader national security issues of the more tra mm -hmm. traditional focus on national defense. This is a critical part of that national defense, but we don't give it the same acute uh, examination and set priorities as we do other aspects of our national defense. Well, you brought up the economy, which I don't think most people think about. I think when most people think about germs and plagues and outbreaks, they think about just people getting sick and they don't think about the ripple effects that has on society as a whole. Mr. Weinstein, you have worked most of your career in law enforcement. You know what pressure does to individuals. You know what it does to societies. Could you outline for us, what does the doomsday scenario look like? And, and I mean the secondary and tertiary effects, the psychological and the economic shockwaves that would just rock through this country. That's a great question. And, you know, you think about an attack, whether it's a terrorist attack or maybe a, a just a naturally occurring um, outbreak of infectious disease, you think of the immediate impact that's going to have on people, you know, the health impact. But then you have to think beyond that. So, I mean, whether it's a traditional terrorist attack with bombs or bullets or even a radiological and nuclear device, horrible. But I think, as you pointed out earlier, 
the attack happens and it's over. We saw that in 9-11, terrible day, we're all scarred by it, but the next morning we got ourselves back up and we committed ourselves to making sure this would never happen again. That next day would look very different after there's an awareness that we have an outbreak of infectious disease. There would be an element of fear or a level of fear that you wouldn't have in a traditional attack because nobody knows where it is. There's not just one single adversary we can go after. That adversary could be our next door neighbor who might come over and shake our hand and kill us. The fear that that generates is gonna cause people to pull into themselves. They're not gonna go out in society. Our economy then is gonna take a hit. There's gonna be less commerce. We're gonna be focused on that in lieu of all the other things that we have to be dealing with as a society and as a government. So I think it could have a crippling effect on us. And all you have to do is just look at the Ebola and Zika, which were, you know, terrible situations. But you think about how much panic might be a little bit of hyperbole, but there was a level of panic among the public about something that was ended up being relatively confined. And uh, what we're talking about here is the possibility either naturally occurring or inserted by uh, a terrorist adversary or a nation state adversary that would be exponentially worse and have exponentially greater damage to our society. And so just like a, a nuclear bomb gives off radiation, a plague attack would give off panic, would give off fear. And because there's a next day, a next day, right. a next right. day, and a next day. <clears throat> right. Um, because you can't stop it by mm. just uh, closing down the airports or, or closing down shipping. You destabilize the world uh, in a sense. I come from Florida, from so South Florida. The Zika epidemic had a direct impact on the economy of Miami. People decided they weren't going to come down there on vacations. Conferences uh, were, were not held. And until the community actually sprayed enough and reduced, people are still talking about whether they should really go down there, particularly women that are of childbearing age. So that's a tiny example of the economic impact. Frankly, the Spanish flu was probably stopped by oceans. We couldn't stop it now by oceans. Right. Because there are airplanes, there's shipping. Um, it would spread across the world and spread very quickly. There's another people hear us, people hear us talking about this. They might be thinking two things. Why are you trying to scare the heck out of us? And by the way, why are you telling the bad guys just how to attack us? Um, that's not, neither of those are our purposes. Our purpose is to alert the public and to alert our policymakers, particularly our president and those in Congress, that these things, it's not a question of if these things are going to happen, it's a question of when they're going to be happen. happen. And then the, the overriding question is how ready will we be and to what extent are we going to be able to confine it or not? Well, let me just uh, transfer uh, that to your question about the economic consequences. By, and I've seen several calculus of, calculi of this which is that the, the maximum amount of money we would have to spend for better detection of a, a bioterrorist event, for better prevention, for, for better response as it uh, uh, broke out, is a, a fraction of what uh, our society would pay, what, what we would lose economically if, if uh, a, an infectious disease outbreak became an epidemic or a pandemic. So, it's always hard to argue about a, a avoided costs that if you're successful with the investments you make are not incurred. But this is one based on history where we can see, uh, you know, money spent now is going to save us a lot more money later on. And what our panel has learned is that we actually know a lot about what strategic investments 
we'd have to make as a nation at the state level, at the local level, but particularly at the federal level, and what kind of leadership we'd need. This isn't, this isn't a black box in which you know, no one knows uh, uh, what to do. Um, I think the panel has a series of recommendations of what to do. This is not something uh, that's new uh, where we'd have to develop some new ideas. We've had some experience. We have the scientific capability to get going on this. Put your finger on the key word, uh, and it was used emphatically this morning. We, we had a series of experts who came before the panel today to talk about their recommendations, and one of the panelists summarized his comment before the panel by saying simply, leadership, leadership, leadership. I think on a bipartisan basis, both parties could be criticized today for not demonstrating the kind of capacity for leadership it takes from the very, very top. We've got to have a president of the United States who says this is a priority. This deserves the same attention. This deserves the same resources. This deserves the same organizational response in a proactive and a reactive way as any other threat to our national security uh, poses today. We need that leadership today, and I, I just hope that uh, that presidents of the United States will seize the moment and demonstrate that capacity for leadership that we need so badly. Well, I, don't I, mind if, I want to just put it real quick into a traditional defense norm because regardless of your political affiliation, uh, we want our president, uh, whether Republican or Democrat, to provide for the common defense. It's one of the primary purposes of the federal government. And I think if you rounded off the numbers in uh, this year's budget and going ahead further, it might be about $600 billion, give or take. I mean, is it a, give or take a billion or two? Uh, the limited resources that we've been able to detect is there's no unified budget. We're not quite sure how much money the federal government is spending on biodefense. is about $6 billion. Uh, now, $600 billion to help prepare and defend us against traditional enemies, nation states, terrorists and the like. All right, we've appropriated that much money. But if you recognize and accept the reality as all of us have done on a bipartisan basis, there's another equally important threat that is just getting literally little or no attention and even fewer resources. So not only is it more resources down the road, but a comprehensive plan to expend them. So if you're spending 600 billion plus on traditional offense, 1% on Biodefense, we think it deserves the kind of executive and congressional leadership on both sides of the aisle uh, that has been too long ignored for, uh, within the country and within our political leadership. Now, isn't it fair uh, to say that from a, from a dollars and cents point of view that you mentioned a little bit about how cost effective this is. Right. Now, most Americans understand that when they spend their taxes on physical weaponry to protect themselves, those weapons literally are only used against specific enemies. All right, if we spend our money on a Titan II missile, that Titan II ICBM is gonna sit in a silo, God willing, and gather dust, and it has no other purpose, and that's it. Whereas the money would, we would be spending on defending ourselves from a bio-attack does double duty and also defends ourselves from just a naturally occurring outbreak. Because if you have a, a well-informed, well-vaccinated public with a robust health system, it is a double shield. Am I right in saying yeah, this? It's a totally. major investment in public health. That's the, that's the double duty you get. 
you make Americans healthy as part of the process because there's a quicker detection of any outbreak mm. and a quicker response and a more accurate response because you've invested in the science at the same time and in a public-private uh, partnership with industry itself, um, the biotech uh, industry, um, uh, the multinational uh, drug companies, because you've developed a, an overall strategy uh, for dealing with what we believe is a major national security issue. And I, I think it's, it's safe to say that we've discussed before that we shouldn't be trying to terrify people into getting on their knees, throwing their hands up, uh, grabbing their kids and running into a bunker to wait for the end. Uh, we can solve this because as you've said, we have solved this. The reason that, that my little boy, if he gets a fever tonight, I don't need to worry that it's the onset of polio. Uh, I, I think that we all need to remember that these diseases that used to murder and cripple millions of Americans. You mentioned your family member with the influenza. Yep. My name, Maximilian, comes from Grandpa Max, who I never knew, who my father never knew, who died of tuberculosis when my father was two years old. Sure. We don't have to worry about that now because we've done such a, a, an amazing job uh, of keeping us safe, at least from natural outbreaks. But uh, Representative Greenwood, what does this panel specifically do to combat a bioattack. In, in, in layman's terms, what's your job? Well, 9-11 happened, the anthrax happened to the senator and, and to others, and Congress reacted. Congress created a set of programs, new laws, new resources, created new funds to, to create countermeasures, medical countermeasures, and it's done a, a beginning part of the job. But again, because these things don't happen very often, um, Everybody kind of forgets and nobody focuses on this. Mm -hmm. So our job and what we've been doing for the last couple of years is saying, okay, now what are the gaps? Mm -hmm. what, are the, what are the next steps? And, and not only did we do that, but with the help of our staff, we put together a very precise set of recommendations for, for, for government um, and for the, well, various branches of government to take. And also we, we, we come to the conclusion that we need someone in the government to be in charge of this, someone who can, can coordinate all of the various agencies, which right now are not really talking to each other that well. So there is a plan, and I think this is important to, to state right here, is after 9-11 there was a failure of imagination and there was a scramble. There was a post-9-11 scramble just like there was a post-Sputnik scramble, there was a post-Pearl Harbor scramble. Americans tend to get sucker punched relatively easily, and we tend not to see the threat coming. But what you're saying is you have a plan, a detailed blueprint, that if it is put into effect, can actually work. And it is your job to advise the government on how to protect me, the citizen. But Mr. Weinstein, that would be great if we lived in an autocracy where there was a professional ruling class who just, they did the job of protecting us and me, the peasant, can go back and live my life. But we don't, we, we live in a republic, uh, which depends on taxes and votes. Uh, as a taxpayer, as a voter, uh, I find it difficult to know what my role is because after 9-11, I was told that all I was supposed to do, all my government wanted me to do was pray, hug my kid, and participate in the economy, and that's it. But what if I want to do more? What if I need to do more? What can I do? Good question, and I, the answer is twofold in terms of what the John Q. Citizen can do, but also what the government can do. Our blueprint is focused largely on the government and really 
I think one of the central features of that is, as Senator Daschle said, leadership, leadership, leadership. And that leadership is defined in a lot of ways, but one definition of leadership is thinking down the road, seeing what is good for the constituency of that leader, i.e. the American people, and explaining to the American people why it's good to take that measure. And in a situation like this where we're looking at a threat that people don't really see as genuine, don't really see as real, um, and, and I draw a parallel to the cyber situation. We were mm -hmm. slow meeting the cyber threat. People didn't see it as being real until these big hacks started coming along and people started losing their, their um, identification, their, you know, their credit cards started getting hacked, and then people realized that the threat <coughs> is real. We were behind the, the curve on that. We didn't show the leadership we needed to meet that threat in advance. We're at the same place here. So I think it's incumbent on the government, all branches, well, congressional and executive branches, to make the case to the American people that their tax dollars need to be spent on, these, uh, on the various measures that we've laid out. And one way of getting that leadership is, as Senator Daschle said, having somebody in the executive branch that's leading the charge on this at a sufficiently high level. We recommended it be in the office of the vice president at a sufficiently high level to mobilize the government, push the government forward, but also to make the case to the American people. And this, to answer your question, is it's incumbent on the government to make the case. We're trying to be an echo chamber to make that case to the American people so that they see that when the next budget or proposed budget has X billion dollars devoted to enhancing the intelligence community's uh, efforts to try to find out where the next terror, uh, bio terror attack is going to come, uh, improve our response capabilities, build up our countermeasure stockpiles, that they will recognize, oh, okay, that's money well spent. And I would hope that there are enough people out there in the, among the American public who recognize that this is a serious threat that they're willing to make that sacrifice. People most vulnerable to bioterrorism are children and the elderly, because that's who these diseases have a, uh, have a real effect on, um, initially at least, um, we've learned. So uh, the public does have a role. They can communicate with their elected officials that this is absolutely critical for the country's future. The business hmm. community has a role. They can send the same message that this has to do with the economy. And, and frankly, our military leaders, um, many of whom know that this is absolutely critical to the work that they're doing, that it's an integral part of the long-term security of not only this country, but really the world. But Max, there's something that should be emphasized as well, and that is that it would be a mistake if we looked at this from a Washington-centric point of view. Mm -hmm. I think it should be emphasized as well. This is a state and local concern as well. Mm -hmm. We need elevated appreciation of the threat and, and plans to address threats at the local and state levels as well. I've had the opportunity to do a little bit of travel for the, 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 the panel, and I've been impressed with some states and the tremendous seriousness with which they take these challenges and this, these issues. And I would just, when you ask the question, what can a, a typical citizen do? It, it should be a call to action at all levels, at the mm -hmm. local level, at the state level, at the federal level. What is our plan? Pressing elected officials in particular for a realization that this is serious and we need to consider just what would happen in a case that would involve our community or our state, not just Washington. Yeah, I think that's the key, that the, the public, what's the best thing the citizens can do to, uh, to get ready to, to be prepared for an infectious disease epidemic or a bioterrorist attack, it's to push their leaders in Congress and in the White House to take action. Because ultimately, 
the preparedness has to be led by government. We need leadership and we need a plan and then we need to implement it. Um, our report that was issued at the end of 2015 and then upgraded last year based on what we had learned is a, a very comprehensive series of recommendations. But we're a, we're a, a, a nonprofit corporation. We're out, we, a lot, we all have experience in government, but we're outside of it now. The, the, I would say the most significant enactment we've had so far of our recommendations is that at the end of last year, both houses of Congress adopted and the president signed, President Obama, a measure mandating that there be a national biodefense plan written. So we're going to have this now. It's, it's in the law. And uh, then uh, we know from our own investigation pretty much what has to be done. There has to be better detection. We've got to see it when it begins to break out. We still don't have the vast resources of the pharmaceutical industry really willing to invest in medical countermeasures to a disease outbreak because it's not a typical market. You know, it could happen, it might not happen. Who, who knows uh, when it's going to happen? And on our public health system, including our hospitals, God forbid there's really a pandemic, uh, are not ready to handle it. And we have to work with them now to be prepared for that. And, and as Donna said, uh, it's a win-win all around because ultimately it, it will improve local uh, health uh, uh, so as, as well. So as a voter, <clears throat> I should basically still be doing what the founders expected me to do since 1776. I should be going to the polls and I should be voting for issues that affect me. So as I understand this, if I read in the paper or I see on the news that there is a biodefense bill working its way through Congress, I should call my representative and I should say, hey, I voted for you. You need to vote for this. Amen. All right, voting for you next time. So, I think that's in, in partly true. An investment in their time. I'm going to just follow on with uh, Senator Dashville said. I think it's a, although there was a lot of there was a huge tragedy there. Look how well Boston responded. And in the midst of that tragedy, why did they respond? Because after 9/11, through a series of basically federal and some state and local efforts, they were prepared. There were resources. There were priorities set. And so when in fact it happened. They kept the casualties to minimum. They had the emergency responders, they had the hospitals, they had the police, I mean, they had everybody involved. Point being, you didn't have to imagine it, it happened. Well, in the biodefense area, you don't have to imagine it, it's happened. It was Zika, it was Ebola, it was H1N1. So, all right, we're not talking about an imaginative assault, a germ assault on this country. We're talking about something that could really happen and we just gotta follow the lessons of others who've identified the possibility and build out that infrastructure. Understand it has national security implications, but as Secretary Shaleo said, enormous economic rep uh, repercussions as well. But there's a lesson. Democracies are normally reactive. Here we're saying to our leaders, be preemptive. It's not a matter of imagination. It's happened before. It could scale up, and we're not ready for a scale up. Now, Governor, on that note, and, and I would like to pose this question to both you and Secretary Shalala, uh, when it comes to me, the voter, uh, we are living in a hyper-partisan age. That, that, that is not hyperbole. That is true. Our, our government is acting like divorced parents, dividing up issues like their furniture in a divorce. Uh, that's a liberal issue. That's a conservative issue. But this affects all of us. Germs don't respect party affiliations. Germs will affect all of us. And therefore, if we're going to come together, it sounds like we are going to have to confront the ideologues on both sides that are trying to tear us apart. Governor Ridge, what would you say to your fellow conservatives who would argue, 
I don't want to vote for this. This is expensive. This is big government bloat, especially when I've been told since 1980, government is not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem. Well, first of all, I would say that I think uh, Republican and Democrat alike uh, want us to be prepared for all eventualities. I don't think Republicans are more interested in providing for the common defense than my friends on the other side of the aisle are. But I would say to my Republican friends, uh, we have long argued, and I embrace that uh, philosophy necessarily, that more isn't necessarily better. Better's better. And so that necessarily more appropriations doesn't, doesn't always address the problem. What I would say to them, if you're looking for smart government, effective government, outcome-based government, then let's accept the recommendations of this group. There is a national strategy. There's a comprehensive plan to help set priorities and, and, and clearly appropriate in the context of a $600 billion national defense budget. If you believe, as this bipartisan panel believes, that this is a national defense issue, set those priorities. But you're going to find, if you think about it, don't just, it's not just giving more money to the same agencies. It's about giving the right amount of money to the right agencies for the right outcomes to build that biodefense infrastructure. I think that's an argument. I think that's a winning argument. It's about effective outcomes. Now, Secretary Shalala, on the different side, of the aisle, what would you say to your fellow liberals who would say that this smells a lot like post 9-11 Bush-Cheney fear-mongering and look where that got us last time and I don't want to vaccinate my kid because I read somewhere on Facebook that that could cause problems? Well, uh, first of all, the first thing I'd say to them is they better vaccinate their kids <laughs> because <laughs> their kids will be at, at risk and put other children uh, at risk. I agree with Governor Ridge. This is not just a matter of allocating new money. It's how we spend the existing money that we have and whether we spend it strategically. These germs do not know whether they're Republicans or Democrats. In the Constitution, protecting the common good, this is clearly a federal role. Certainly the strategy is a federal role. And that ought not to be debatable between Republicans or Democrats. This is about making certain that the American people are safe and that they're healthy. And that's a very critical role. Um, it's, it's the best investment we can make for our future. We're anticipating the future. That's what leaders, leaders are supposed to do, whether they're Democrats or Republicans. And I agree with, uh, uh, with Governor Ridge that, uh, that spending the money smarter, getting better coordination, having leadership out of the White House, will make all the difference uh, for the future for a disease we can't predict at this moment. We talked about the voters and whether the voters should be calling their members of Congress and so forth. And I think to some extent that's true, but realistically they're getting the kids off to school, they're going to work, they're paying their bills, they're taking care of their homes and so forth. But what we're trying to tell the members of Congress is your constituents are not knocking on your door now, calling you and yelling at you, this is my number one issue, because frankly it isn't. But you can be sure of this, when it happens, and a bunch of them have died, um, they will be knocking on your door, they will be calling you, and they will say, why weren't you ready for this? You had plenty of advice, plenty of reports, and you didn't do the job. I'd like to just add, as by way of encouragement in this time of uh, awful partisanship here in Washington, except on this panel, uh, I saw a poll recently, I forgot where it's from, it was credible, where it was an interesting question. They asked people, uh, do you think we should rely on the government to solve big national problems 
or should we leave it to the private sector, to businesses and individuals? And at a time when there's great anti-government feeling in the country, a lot of it for good cause, 60% said the government, we have to count on the government to solve our problems, high 30s said um, individuals and business. And, and I think that's a, that's a kind of bipartisan consensus, common sense, mm. that when you're dealing with something as big as an infectious disease pandemic or a, or a biological terrorist attack, we have to count on the government uh, to protect us. So it's, it's, it's just like World War II. Yes, the government led the way, but the private industry was the one that built the weapons, and it was the average citizen that voted and bought war bonds and put on uniforms and right. did what they had to do. So this, if we take nothing else from this time together, this is a serious threat. This is real. This is happening. Plagues happen all the time, and the next big one will happen, either from nature or from somebody's lab. But it will happen. So we need to wake up, but we also need to calm down. This is not an asteroid hurtling towards Earth. This is not the sun going supernova. This is solvable. We have solved it in the past. We now have a blueprint and the experts to solve it in the future. All we need now is the national will. Thank you all for watching. Thank you for being here.